You're listening to On the Same Page, a podcast from the Jefferson Madison Regional Library. Welcome back to a new episode of On the Same Page, a podcast from the Jefferson Madison Regional Library System. I'm Abby, here with my co-host, EJ. That's right, I'm EJ. In today's episode, we're sharing how to grow, learn, and connect at all nine branches of JMRL. We also have our second installment of Overbooked, our podcast book club, currently featuring All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dewar. Stick around until the end of the episode to hear the rundown, what Abby and I are up to these days. Before we jump into all that, we want to make sure you know about JMRL's For the Love of Reading Challenge, which begins on Tuesday, February 14th, Valentine's Day. If you haven't signed up yet, check the show notes for the direct link. Now, without further ado, here's how you can grow, learn, and connect these next two weeks at JMRL. All are welcome to visit the Bookmobile. Monday through Thursday, the Bookmobile has scheduled stops in Abermarill County. Afternoons and evenings, the Bookmobile visits its scheduled stops in Charlottesville. At Central, celebrate Valentine's Day, Black History Month, and your love of libraries at our all-ages program this Sunday, February 12th. Crafts, snacks, and loving. In the Swanson Room, we will be screening the movie Loving, starting at 1.30, And in the smaller meeting rooms, we will have crafts and activities. At Crozet, the Tween Advisory Board meeting is February 13th at 5 p.m. It will be followed by a Tween Board Game event at 6.30 p.m. At Gordon, a special wear and repair mending workshop for teens and adults will be taking place tomorrow, February 11th at 3 p.m. Bring an item of clothing you'd like to learn to repair, and JMRL will supply instructions and supplies. Registration is required, so go to jmrl.org to register. At Green, kids ages 7 through 12 are invited to a slime party on Thursday, February 16th at 3.30 p.m. At Louisa, aspiring and experienced teen and adult writers can gather for our local writing group on Thursday, February 23rd at 4 p.m. At Nelson, we will be celebrating 50 years of Schoolhouse Rock with activities all day long on Wednesday, February 22nd. At Northside, don't miss the Adult Anime Club, taking place Wednesday, February 22nd at 6.30 p.m. At Scottsville, we will be showing the animated family-friendly film Encanto on Saturday, February 18th at 1 p.m. As always, check the calendar to find more information and to register. All right, listeners, you know what time it is. It's overbook time. Today, we are continuing our discussion of all the light we cannot see. If you missed our first installment, check our show notes below for a link to that episode. For this episode of Overbooked, we are going to be discussing some classic book club questions, and we will be posting some links in the show notes. So if you are looking for some more book club questions to discuss with your book club or just to think about on your own, you can check out those links in the show notes. So our first question is about Werner, and it says, Werner is fascinated by the inner workings of mechanical systems like radios. 
However, when he hears German society referred to as a great machine, he is repulsed by the comparison. How are humans like machines, and how are we unlike machines? Why might it be frightening or disgusting to imagine ourselves as machines? The first thing that came to my mind was that machines are very predictable. I thought machines do the same thing every time. And I connected it to character. I was thinking, which characters are like machines? I immediately thought of the antagonist. I thought of him because we talked in our last episode about how he is so single-minded. He's relentless, and he's only thinking about one thing. So that felt very machine-like to me. I thought, all right, he's predictable. We know what his actions are leading towards. But then I thought about Marie Lur's father, and I thought he's also a very predictable character. You know what's coming from him, even down to the point of they obviously have a very regimented and routine life because she is blind. So every day they have the same routine. They often have the same meals. They walk similar routes. Their life feels very orderly, almost very machine-like. And he's also very predictable in the fact that he is unfailing in his love for Marie Lore. That's always his way. He's always loving. He's always warm. He's always tender. He's always patient. I mean, he is like the saint of the book. So then I started wondering, okay, so we have these two characters, like the best of the best and the worst of the worst, and they're similar in that they're always predictable. So I was trying to decide if Marie Lore's father could be characterized as machine-like because I think it's the warmth. Like there's something about that human component. But like, do you feel comfortable talking about him as a machine, I guess would you say? What do you think, EJ? Any thoughts on this question? Okay, Abby, so you're asking if I think that Daniel LeBlanc is machine-like. Y- yes. I think in some aspects, yes, he is like a machine. I I do think his choice to attempt to go back to Paris was strange, but it could have been because he was so regimented in what he did and how he worked at the museum and what he thought about the people at the museum. And he was picked to have this diamond or a fake. He was picked for that. And maybe you need to have some sense of p- predictability to be picked for something as secretive and covert as it was. So what 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 about Werner and made him machine like do you think he was or do you think he was an anomaly Yeah you know we know a lot we know a lot about him but we also know very little about him all at the same time I think he gravitated towards Frederick for a reason because Frederick was different maybe Frederick reminded Werner of the person he wished he could be I think Werner really wanted to be able to say no to things like Frederick did. I think Werner wanted to be more like Frederick to make decisions the way Frederick made decisions. And obviously, Frederick was forever changed by what happened at the school. But I think so was Werner, but in different ways. So I think the big 
machine repulsion comes from everyone doing their part, which is a very German thing during that time. You know, you're doing this part and that fits into this and that fits into this and that fits into this. And Werner was part of that, but he didn't like it. He wanted to teach people how radios work and he wanted to talk to kids like Etienne and his brother did. He wanted to do so much more, but couldn't figure out a way to do those things. Frederick figured out a way to do those things and we saw what happened to Frederick. It was awful and terrible and the wrong thing for anyone to do, but Werner didn't stop it. And that, I think that moment in the book completely flipped Werner on his head. I think from that moment on, he realized that if he wanted to survive and to survive, not just, you know, being alive, but to survive with his dignity, to survive with anything left of what he went into that school with, his integrity, anything that he was going to have to change the way he was. And when he gets up with the giant and when they're together, you do see it more and more. You know, you see that camaraderie build between the two of them and how they do protect each other. And But you also see a lot of Werner thinking for himself and doing things for himself because Werner was determined to save Mary Laura at a certain point. So without what happened at the school and without those comparisons, maybe he wouldn't have been so... He wouldn't have been so, like, motivated to try to save Mary Lore or, you know, try to figure out all of the other things that he did or try to run away at the end because he didn't know where he was or what was happening. Yeah, his his story is just tragic to me. Werner's story is just tragic. And this is just another example of how tragic his life was throughout the whole story. And taking this... A little outside the book. I think one of the interesting things to think about when we're thinking about machines is everything is there. One of the interesting things about humans, and I think what makes these characters so neat to me, is that there's a dimension of them, whether it's their soul or their heart or something, that you can't just take them apart and put them back together. There's no way to ever... This would be this would actually be a whole nother question. But like, is there ever really a way to fully know someone? Because that's kind of what we're talking about here. I think it's pretty interesting how we talk about these characters and be like, yeah, there's a lot of them that we don't know. But really, they're not real people. So it's like, you know, what else is there to know? But I think it's kind of fun that we're almost imagining like that there is so there's this secret place inside each character that we don't necessarily know because it's only themselves. And this kind of this all rolls into this next question. And the question is this, as a child, Werner pesters Frau Elena with unanswerable questions, like why doesn't the glue stick to the inside of the bottle? These questions seem to reflect Werner's engagement with the world and his potential to change the world. Later, Werner and Marie Lore both feel oppressed by unanswerable questions, such as the reasons for cruelty and suffering. How should we respond to the unanswerable questions in our own lives? Is it best to continue wrestling with them or to let them be? I chose this question because the first thing I thought of was 
I wanted to reflect a little bit more about those things that Werner had with him when he died that were eventually sent to his sister because it was just a few things. Obviously, there was his military paraphernalia, but the two personal things were his journal, like his childhood journal that his sister had sent him once he had gone out to war. She had sent him this I guess as a reminder, it was, I mean, we can talk about that. Like, why did she send it and why did he keep it? And then there was the envelope that was addressed to Frederick. And all it had in there was the pictures of the birds, which I thought was such a crazy moment in itself. Like, I read that and I wanted there to be more. I don't know if you feel this way, EJ, but it was like I wanted him to have written Frederick a note or written to his mom. But in another way, it felt so perfect because it felt perfectly human. It was after he had had his experience of like falling in love with Marie Lore because she had the book and he took the pictures out of the book. He separated from her. He went on to quickly die. But in those last few days, last few moments, he still had those pictures and he addressed it to Frederick like and yes there was no note there was no final closure there but to me it was heartbreaking but it felt so right because it was very perfectly human in that moment Werner had been through so much he had lost so much and even as he was losing Marie Lore his most latest loss he was thinking now about Frederick as well and I can just imagine the overwhelm that he must have felt. Do we continue wrestling with them or do we let them be? I think this question is really interesting, Abby, because I I think really what it is, is he did have potential to change the world. He did have this potential to learn so much and to, to do so much. But his unanswered question, I think, constantly was why? Why is this happening? Why is the German army like a machine? Why don't I like that? Why am I repulsed by that notion? Why is it that my friend can't look at birds? Why does that make him weak in their eyes? Why do I have to lie about my age when I'm only 16 and they say I'm 18? Why why don't I get to speak for me? Why can't I advocate for myself? And I think those are the same types of questions that Mary Lore has. Why can't Mary Lore advocate for herself to Etienne? She has a hard time with that. Regardless of the freedom that Etienne gives her, she has a hard time advocating for herself because of Etienne's own problems. Werner, it, it kind of just reflects that type of thing. Both Mary Lore and Werner had very similar questions of life, but one could see all of those answers and one could feel all of the answers. So he couldn't figure out why. He knew it was happening. He couldn't figure out why. Mary Lore seemed to know why. <laughs> she seemed to know. She seemed to understand that the world can cause suffering, can cause cause hardship because she saw it. I think it just goes back to the title of the book, All the Light We Cannot See. It talks about everybody. Everybody in the book has some sort of reason why they couldn't see the light at a certain time. 
whether it be blind or agoraphobic or ignorant or you don't want to see the light or your light is a false light in Van Rumpel's case, you know, there are a lot of unanswered questions in life, in everyone's lives, especially in this book. But I think the biggest one for everybody was why. And I think that's something that we wrestle with today. Why? We have history, we have books, we have movies, we have documentaries, we have letters, we have secondary sources, we have primary sources, we have troop movements, we know what happened, but we don't know why. We can guess, we can study it. Will we ever know what was in the heads of the people making these decisions? We don't know why. Neither did they. And to piggyback off of that, some things maybe we do know why, or we can come up with a very tight answer, like this is 99% of why, except maybe for that little 1% of the person that is, you know, hidden in themselves that can't be explained and whatever. But then my question is, why do things keep happening? And I thought that's what you were going to ask is why with all of our history, does history continue to repeat itself? And is there like, is there a way for it to end? And what I would say too, to, to just bring this back to the book or back to the idea of books for one final thought is I think it's good to continue wrestling with these questions because I think that's really how every book starts is with a question. And if we don't have questions, if we don't have curiosities, if there's nothing, if there's no layer of the human experience that is still a mystery, then there's nothing interesting to write about because there is no surprise really relates to this whole machine question. There are still, there are parts of human experience that we're still figuring out, even the oldest among us. And so books help us do that. So my questions have to do with Etienne and um, and the Sea of Flames. So the first question is, after witnessing the atrocities of World War I, Etienne secludes himself in his house and begins broadcasting a radio program for children. Why do you think he chooses to address his program to children? I think that's a pretty simple answer, at least for me. It is, and it's probably more complex than what I'm about to say, but I think Etienne believed that children were the future. I think a lot of people do believe that, but I think Etienne really wanted it to be true, and he really wanted children to hear their words, their lessons, their ideas, their experiments. He wanted them to hear that and then do something with it, which is which came true. Werner and Yuta listened to those radio broadcasts and they learned so much. In fact, it opened up their curiosity because of that. But maybe Etienne was also afraid of the question of why. <laughs> why did this happen in World War I? And then just a few short years later, we have almost a mirror of what happened in World War II, one, except way worse in World War II. Children are impressionable and can be taught ideas. These ideas were science and they were important and they needed to get out. And they're free thinkers, children. They don't have these you know, barriers in their minds, these, these questions of, 
where does it come? Where does the next meal come from? Where where does my paycheck come from? How do I pay the bill? They don't have these. They might think of them, but they're not questions as a child that they have. And so I think the innocence of children, the idea that helping children to build a brighter future, I think that's what inspired Etienne. And maybe that's too simplistic, but I think Etienne was a pretty simple person with a complex problem. So he he got better in a sense that his love for Mary Laura grew. And so his love for the world grew, I think. And he, again, fell in love with the world outside because I think he it it betrayed him, in a sense, during World War I. And he saw atrocities that no person should have to see and then lived with them. So, yeah. He's definitely one of the least machine-like characters of the book because his transformation to me felt just miraculous and like that again is another point too okay here's a little piece of a person that is just unable to be explained because if you have a disorder like agoraphobia or if that is your experience even if you love someone even if you care about them even if logically or emotionally you want to leave the house on their behalf you can't because it's a it's a real thing but he was, he was able to leave for her. And I think that he chose to address the program to children because I think that it's a shame he never got to be a father. I mean, seeing him with Marie Lore, he was so father-like to her. That was such an unexpected surprise because of course we're introduced to him at the beginning of the book from Daniel and Marie Lore's perspective. And they just, all they know about him is that he's the crazy uncle their words, but we found out that he was so gifted with children. I just think one more interesting thing about Etienne is that he really treated like Mary Lore as an equal more than as a guardian. He depended on her. She depended on him. They worked together and they were good partners. And I think that that really helped Etienne's growth in Mary Lore's as well. So my last question here is, Let's talk about the significance of the Sea of Flames jewel. Do you believe it did hold those powers? Or do you think it was supposed to represent something more about human nature? Okay, so those are the two I'm going to focus on now. And then there's one more that we'll close out the whole overbooked chapter with here. So the significance of the Sea of Flames jewel. Well, this had some significance in this book, didn't it, Abby? At first, I was like, oh, this is a fun, strange story that we're starting the book with. This story that goes on, you know, years and years and years ago and about a a jewel that makes you, you know, immortal and you can't die on it. And and I was like, are we in a different story? I wasn't sure where we were going with it, but it makes sense. There's a lot of diamonds out there. There's a lot of lore with these things. The Sea of Flames jewel. Do you think it held these powers? No, I do not believe that the, that this jewel held these powers. I do believe it said something more about human nature and greed and um, us, us as humans wanting to believe something more superstitious type 
thing because it, it it's it's quite a grand story, no, Abby? Like, if you are in possession of this jewel, you will not die. I mean, that that's a lot. You can look back at human history and see that there are all sorts of journeys to go find, you know, the fountain of youth or, you know, any of these other tall tales that we hear as kids that, that explorers actually went to go looking for. As we've mentioned, humans are curious. This book sparks a sense of curiosity in a lot of the characters. This jewel, the Sea of Flames, did the same thing, except that our antagonist was obsessed with it. So Sergeant Major Von Ruppel, who we've talked about a little bit, he was obsessed with this jewel. But without Von Ruppel, there are still stakes, but there aren't like life and death stakes for Mary Lore. Right. She was pretty protected in her house with Etienne for a while. But add in Von Rumpel's desperation and his greed and his just possessive mind of this jewel that really changes the tone of the book. And it really changes the tone of him as a character, because not only is he is he dying, but I think that he thinks that if he gets the diamond or the jewel, that he's not going to die anymore. And that's a lot. So that might just be blind faith and trying to get better because he felt so bad all of the time. Maybe that's the case. But I do think it says more about human nature. I don't think that the diamond had real powers. What do you think, Abby? Do you, do you think it had powers? Because we heard so many stories about it having these powers. What do you think? I think the significance of the Sea of Flames is that it is not all good. So many of these things that are like salvation stories, it's just all happy endings. But the Sea of Flames, when you have it, you're protecting yourself, but all the people around you that you love will slowly die, but not just die because we all die. Everyone's going to die. But not just die, but like die tragically and unexpectedly and maybe painfully. And it's a curse. It's a blessing and a curse. So I think that was really the significance of the of the jewel was putting in that extra tweak of the curse with the caveat that the curse really only comes when you protect yourself. So I think it actually does. I think there's a little bit of a lesson there, too. Sometimes when you protect yourself, you hurt others, unfortunately. I even just think about the conversation we just had about when Etienne was brave enough to go out and look for Marie Laura. If he had chosen to protect himself and stay in the house without a shadow of a doubt, it's not that he would have hurt others, but you see, sometimes when we protect ourselves, others get hurt. Maybe that's a better way to put it. But I think both are true. Sometimes when we protect ourselves, we really are hurting others. Like we do it. We inflict that hurt. And sometimes we just allow others to be hurt. I think you can take that out from even the smallest little example of him or the women that he works with and their resistance. They're not protecting themselves. They're putting themselves in danger to save others, to help others. Or it can be brought out on a bigger scale, like even think about the war like on a huge scale. What what about it stems from selfishness or self-protection? Did I think it hold the powers? Yeah, did- Here's the thing, EJ. I 
did not, when the book started, I did not think that the jewel had any powers. But by the end, I was almost like, yeah, I think it does. And I and I was okay with that because in the real world, I would never, ever, ever think that a diamond or a jewel would hold a power like that. But in the world of a novel, I'm okay with it, it especially if the novel is amazing like this one. So I was like, okay, I actually do think that it has the powers and I love it. I'm here for it. You know, when you were talking, Abby, I... I will admit I was a little bit sidetracked because I'm I'm trying to think about this diamond or I'm trying to think about this jewel in in a in a sense of okay the idea is whoever has it wouldn't die. So the question now for me is do you think any of the characters believed it? So the story was known by Daniel. The story was known by Daniel. It was known by Mary Lore. Von Rumpel obviously had known the story. So do we think that it's the diamond that kept Mary Laura alive that whole time? Like she was in possession of the diamond, the real diamond. And so that's why she was alive. Do you think that's why Daniel left her with the diamond when he went to Paris to supposedly give back the diamond? Yeah. Yeah. Why did he go to Paris? Because honestly, here's the thing. Daniel left for Paris. But how does that fit his machine mold? Because his machine is that he's supposed to be Marie, Laura's protector, but he wasn't even bringing the diamond back. So what was he going back for? Didn't they ask him? Didn't he get a letter that said he had to come back? Didn't Von Rupel like make them send him a letter that's that recalled all of the people back with the diamonds? And so he got this letter and he was like, this is weird. I better go. Suspicious. Let's leave the diamond at home with Mary Laura. I think Daniel believed it. I think Daniel believed that the diamond is real. And I also believe that Daniel believed he had the real diamond. We heard him, we heard him question himself and ask and, and wonder if it was the real diamond. You know, when he's on the train, he's having this like existential crisis, like before he is arrested and searched, like he's having this whole crisis, like, wait, okay, if I have the real diamond and I left it with Mary Lore, does that put a target on her back? Yes. So did he inadvertently, by trying to save her with a magical diamond, put a target on her back? Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> but the only way it doesn't put a target on her back is if it's real. Because, yeah, it's a huge risk. Because if he left her with a fake one, then she has the target, but she has no protection. I wonder if he went to Paris knowing he was going to get captured or, or killed. I... I... <laughs> Yeah, I think about like three or four chapters after we we last saw Daniel or we last heard from Daniel before Mary Laura started getting letters from him. I was convinced that he just left because he knew that they were going to come looking for him about the diamond because eventually he figured that they were going to figure the diamond thing out. They were going to come looking for him and he needed to get away from Mary Laura, regardless of whether the diamond or the jewel was with Mary Laura or was with him. He had to get away from her because I think he thought that he was the target at a certain point because of his knowledge or, you know, him being chosen and all of that. So yeah, maybe he just left on purpose. He just left. Well, of course he left on purpose, but maybe he just left knowing he wasn't going to come back. Which makes sense, because if he believed the diamond was real and now Marie Lore holds the diamond, well, the story says that whoever holds the diamond will live, but those that they love will die, which means he's the one that she loves, he will die. Whereas if he was holding the diamond, 
that's putting her at a risk because she would have died. She's the one that he loves. I hadn't thought that perhaps the reason why Daniel left was because he thought the diamond was real and that all of her family was going to die or all of her loved ones were going to die. And so she, he didn't want to be around for that or he was trying to maybe sacrifice himself for it. Okay. Yeah. This is really interesting. This whole question about the sea of flames. And the, and the related question is finding out, like you just said, how does everybody feel about it? Because I think it's so interesting that Marie Lore, she was almost the smartest person in the book because she realized it's not worth it. She threw it in the ocean. But Daniel, I'm surprised that he didn't realize and maybe just throw it away. But it's true that wouldn't be in his character because he worked at the museum with these artifacts. How can you just throw an artifact into the sea? Because if it's not powerful, then it's just an amazing artifact. And how can you throw that into the sea? I think that if Daniel did believe it, he maybe thought Mary Lord didn't. And so that's why he left the diamond, because he knew that she would have the self-will, because he knows her better than anybody. He knew that Mary Laura would have the self-will and the preservation to get rid of the diamond, that she wouldn't fall into the trap of the diamond. The other thing I'm just now remembering is when Marie Laura heard the story about the diamond at the beginning of the book, remember she was on some sort of class field trip or something? She was with other kids. She was not even with Daniel. So he he doesn't even know that Marie Laura knows the story. I mean, right, EJ? There's no way because and because here's the thing. He d- he never told her I have this diamond. And we don't know if she knew that it was the same diamond from the story. We don't know because she's blind. So she didn't see that it was blue inside, you know? And the other thing is, it's interesting, like he didn't tell her that he had the diamond, but he he was the one who gave her that hint. I'm just saying this Sea of Flames jewel diamond artifact, very interesting piece to the story. It really made the story more than just what the story was. I know that's kind of a weird thing to say about a book as beautiful as this one and as well written and tragic and thought provoking as this is. All right, listeners, we are doing one more overbooked segment, and we are going to cover the setting, pace, tone, writing style, and read-alikes for All the Light You Cannot See. We'd love to hear what you have to say about this book, so please email us at podcast at jmrl.org. And now it's time for The Rundown. What are you reading? It's Not All Downhill From Here by Terry McMillan. I'm reading Beyond the Wand by Tom Felton. What are you watching? Don't Be Nice, a powerful and timely documentary film about a team of slam poets fighting to find the words to speak its truth to the world. I checked out this DVD from JMRL in preparation for Same Page. And I'm watching House of the Dragon, which is the new, to me, Game of Thrones prequel. I'm a bit behind, but I'm quickly catching up. Really crazy so far. And now, what are you learning? I'm learning touch typing, also known as five finger typing, also known to me as grown-up typing, 
I'm learning on typingclub.com, a free website to learn typing. Highly recommend. I'm learning the fundamentals of some new building and strategy games, including one called City Skylines. And now for our surprise questions. My question this time is related to getting to know our community. So EJ, I'm curious to know, think back to the last time that you left the house to do something besides coming to work. <laughs> like if you went out to a restaurant or a community event, a public space, we will say, where did you go and what did you do? You know, Abby, that's a really great question. I am pretty new to the area, haven't even been here a year yet, but something that we are enjoying doing is going out to the Pretty Creek Trails and doing some hiking. Not recently since the weather has been weird, but we've had some nice days and we've made it out there a couple of times. So yeah, our dog likes it. It's a lot of fun and it's not too crowded and it's a really nice trail. I love Pretty Creek. I also just have to include this little shout out for any of my immediate family that might be listening. We call Pretty Creek Princess Creek because of my sweet dog, Milo. He's our sweet little dog. We call him a princess. And so he likes to refer to Pretty Creek as Princess Creek. So that's just a shout out to Milo. Love you, Milo. I love that your dog refers to Pretty Creek as Princess Creek. I love that. I love that Milo is talking to you, Abby. It's really important. I'm so glad that we are at this level. This is wonderful. Okay. If you were on a desert island and you only could have, I'm going to say one album because I feel like it's too hard to say one song to listen to forever. So one album with you, a CD, who's the artist? And do you have a particular album that you really love to listen to over and over again? I do. Okay, so a little bit about my musical tastes and my musical feelings. I love Taylor Swift. She's kind of my favorite all around, just like forever. I love her. I've loved everything from the beginning to the present. She's great. But if I can only have one album, I have to choose my go-to album. This is, and I have a few. I have like maybe two or three albums that I go to if I just need if I need something. And I'm probably not alone in this, but they're albums from my childhood. So they're albums that my parents listened to, that we always listened to in the car, on our road trips, going to Tennessee to see my extended family. In our boombox growing up, we would just put on these CDs and have dance parties as a family. So now I listen to it on YouTube, but it's Indigo Girls Become You. That's my go-to. I just put that on and it takes me back to my childhood Thank you, listeners, for being a part of this podcast community. We're so happy to have you. We hope you'll join us in taking a moment to thank the friends of the library who generously support this endeavor. 
If you'd like to learn more or join the Friends, you can head to their website at jmrlfriends.org. That's all for us today. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode. Don't forget, you can get involved on social media or by emailing us at podcast at jmrl.org. Thanks for tuning in. We're glad to be on the same page. Thank you.